The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. Welcome to another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Today, we speak with Melina Ivanchikova and Rob Vanderland from the Center for Teaching Innovation. We talk with them about a digital exhibition project they spearheaded entitled Any Person, Many Stories, Histories of Exclusion and Inclusion at Cornell. They tell us all about the inspiration for this project and how the experiences of inclusion and belonging are being considered and explored in new and meaningful ways. My name is Toral Patel. And my name is Erin Sambushase. And you're listening to the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Well, hello, Melina and Rob. Welcome. If you could just introduce yourselves and including what pronouns you use and what you do at Cornell and how long you've worked here to kick us off. Hi, everyone. I'm Melina Ivanchikova. I'm an associate director at the Center for Teaching Innovation. And my job primarily is focused on supporting inclusive teaching practices in the classroom. Thank you. How about you, Rob? Hi, everyone. I'm Rob Vanderland. I'm the executive director for the Center for Teaching Innovation. I've been in that role for maybe six months, but I've been involved in the teaching center for about a decade. When I came to Cornell, it's a tough question to answer because I was a student back in the 80s, and oh. I've been here sort of off and on for many years since. Yeah. Wow. wow. Thank you both for joining us today. We're so excited to have this conversation with you. To get us started, um, can you tell us a little bit more about the Center for Teaching Innovation? What is it? Who is it for? Sure. The Center for Teaching Innovation, our mission is to support faculty in creating uh, meaningful learning experiences for our students. And it's for everybody who's involved in the teaching mission. So faculty, graduate students, postdocs, anybody who's really uh, working as as an instructor or supporting instruction. Our goal is to help faculty improve their teaching practice, use evidence-based teaching methods, create inclusive uh, learning environments, integrate technology where appropriate and relevant. That's really interesting to hear. So you really, you work mostly now with faculty and teaching staff and that sort of thing. Rob, in your description, you used the word inclusive a couple times, which I thought was um, really interesting. So, you know, our theme this season of podcast is to dive a little deeper into that word, inclusivity, inclusion, right, belonging. So we'd love to just hear both of your initial reactions when you hear those words, inclusion and belonging. What do they mean to you? I can start with that one. I, I think about these words quite a lot, and my main desire when I hear them is for them to really mean what we hope they mean, because I've noticed that when, when words get used over and over again, I'm a poet by training, so I pay a lot of careful attention to how words are used. We can overuse them and the meanings change slowly over time and they come to mean other things. But for me, when I, when I think about belonging, I think about that feeling. It's a feeling that you have that you get to be a part of something, that you're included. And you can see that they're both related, inclusion and belonging are, are, are part of things. But that really what it means for me is a kind of attention to social justice, to making sure that, that everyone is able to belong no matter what your social identities or your experiences, your, your lived background. And Cornell, it's an elite institution with a storied history. It can feel very alienating and strange for anybody who comes here for the first time. I came to Cornell about 10 years ago and as a staff member, and it was really my first experience in an Ivy League institution. My own background is 
working class. I used to be a faculty member at a community college. Um, so I, I just was very shy, I have to say, for a very long time navigating my way at Cornell. So inclusion to me is it's part of my job. I, I, I actually focus on helping to create inclusive environments and in everything I do and keep open the door for continuous learning because things change when it comes to inclusion and belonging. Yeah, thanks, Melina. I share a lot of those perspectives. And I think, you know, we work with faculty to think about what, what we can do in the classroom and the learning environment to create an environment where everybody feels included, feels like they can find belonging. And I think it's imperative for as an institution that we pay a lot of attention to that. But I think what's really interesting to me is that belonging seems slightly different in that belonging often seems very individual. And so I think everybody finds their own route to belonging. Hopefully they do. I know not everybody does, but that's the aspiration. I think in, in distinctive or, or unique ways. You know, I think about my own experience as a, as a Cornell student a lot in these contexts. I was also a first-gen college student. I didn't know what the Ivy League was when I first got here. I had a vague sense that there was an athletic conference of some kind. All of that, that whole immersion in a world of an Ivy League institution was, was new. And I did not feel like I belonged for quite a long time. It was a really difficult adjustment. What was interesting is that I really, what I did know is that I wanted to belong, right? It was an aspiration. And that first couple of years was really finding places where I could find belonging. And Initially, it actually happened outside of the classroom. It happened in, in a work environment. I worked in a dining hall, and the people there tended to come from backgrounds that were similar to mine, and that, that was the first sort of community. But what was really exciting was eventually that belonging really did happen in the classroom community over, over a span of years as I built sort of confidence. That's the sort of experiences that we hope our students are going to have, right? They'll find belonging in lots of different environments, but one of those we really hope will be in the classroom and the learning space. I really, really appreciate it, both of you sharing a little bit about your personal experience coming to Cornell because you were reminding me about when I interviewed many years ago and I went back and told my friends about it and they were like, oh, they're, gonna, they're definitely going to hire you. I said, yeah, but I don't know. And they're like, well, I don't know if I should go there. And they're like, what do you mean? And I was like, it's Cornell. It's this Ivy League, and I don't know that I, I mean, you know how I talk and how I am. I don't know that I fit in there. You're right, it was already that impression hit me right off the bat just because of the name, just because it's Ivy League. I barely even had met anybody yet. I had a one day of interviews, that was it. But right away I came in with that idea that I might not be able to be me, that I might not be able to be myself. And yeah, some of it is just figuring out how to get comfortable with being yourself, but some of it is trying to find those people and those spaces where you can see there's an invitation to be yourself. You know, and I think that is where the inclusion comes in for sure. Yeah, yeah. So back to that whole some of the work comes from you and some of the work comes from the people in the organization. Yeah, definitely. I love that. And I, I love it, especially thinking about uh, our undergrads. You came at an age, Aaron, where you had a sense of who you were, and it was probably pretty solid. But I think for many of our students, they're, they're right in that age of figuring it out. And so, you know, that adds another level of complexity to all of this. I had a similar experience, Erin, when I first interviewed, but my life was sort of in an upheaval when I moved to upstate New York. I moved here from Alaska, and before that, I lived in New Mexico. So 
I was sort of my life was in transition. So I felt like I was I felt like an undergraduate student. I was right in the middle of becoming all sorts of new things and navigating new identities. And so I remember during my interview, I was like, okay, I'm queer. I need to come out of the closet right away so that there's no awkwardness ever. And I don't have to like think about how to do it and just have it be out there on the table. But I remember how risky it felt. But then ultimately I felt happy that I had made that decision it became easier because I think I've found very affirming micro communities overall. There have been a, a few times at Cornell where I haven't felt a sense of belonging, but it, it hasn't come through aggression based on other people. It's come through, you know, maybe my own insecurity or sort of the self-consciousness that I felt in particular around class background really was something that I had to think about. And part of part of what the thinking that I that I did was sort of in dialogue across difference with others and just really being in conversation with many different people about their experience and thinking about other aspects of my identity and you know where where I had experienced advantages and how I told my own story about who I was. And I like to think that because I like to obsessively think about all these things, that's why I've ended up in the position of uh, looking for and helping people tell their own stories about identity and belonging. Well, that's a great segue into one of the big things we're talking with you about, telling stories, telling people's stories, right? So you both applied for a Belonging at Cornell grant, which, first of all, how cool is it that we work someplace that has a Belonging at Cornell grant? But that aside, that was a couple years ago now. And from that, you ended up launching what I'm calling sort of like this awesome online repository of Cornell history. It's just sort of this whole different way of sharing Cornell history. And the project is entitled Any Person, Many Stories, Histories of Exclusion and Inclusion at Cornell. So tell us everything. <laughs> what, you know, whatever made you think it is, what was the inspiration? Obviously, what is it? You know, I've seen it, but our, our listeners probably haven't yet. So tell us about it. Thank you, Erin. Maybe we can take it in chunks and then you can let some questions flow our way because we have a lot to say about this yeah, project. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've been working on it since uh, the fall of 2020. And so it sort of emerged out of the events that were happening over the summer with the Black Lives Matter movement and the street movement that was pretty mind-bogglingly ginormous, bigger than the civil rights movement, which I just couldn't picture like in my mind the civil rights movement is the biggest street movement of all time and so when i look back and sort of compare the numbers of people who were on the streets and that energy and then the demands that started to flow in through our hallways so to speak but basically graduate students undergrads staff there was just this this turmoil this reckoning about what what are we going to do in higher education we had our community read of reading ibram kendi's book how to be an anti-racist so all of us were thinking about, you know, where can we do better? What can we do more? How can we be anti-racist, not just in words, but in the things that we do? There was also the, uh, the stress of the pandemic. And, you know, our lives were really upended. We were working remotely. Our unit in particular was tasked with what really felt like emergency support. So my refuge, in a way, is stories and storytelling. I've always found uh, meaning-making, the sense of the world, a way of discovering cultural differences, wisdom. My dad used to read me Native American stories when I was growing up and stories from Latin America. I'm half Argentinian, I have a Latin American heritage. So, so really, story-making has, I feel, been always the thing that has held me together. 
And so we, we suddenly had an opportunity, and, and I know Rob has a special story to tell, so I'm, not, I'm just going to hint that one's coming from Rob, but there was another thing that influenced our thinking as we started as we started this. So I don't know how we made space for this because honestly, we were really busy at the time, but we somehow got the engines going and started talking to each other and then talking to some faculty partners and library partners, staff partners. Erin, you were an early person who was part of our early conversations to just kind of explore and test whether this idea had merit first. And we didn't, it took a while to, to take its shape as well because we weren't quite sure exactly what it was going to be. So what it is, it's a, it's a public history project. And so we really wanted to have the involvement and have the stories that were contributed be from members of our own community, students, staff, faculty, alumni, and sometimes community members who had had a deep involvement or former staff members or emeritus faculty who had been involved. And so we put together the scaffold for that and created a mini grant program out of the funding that the Belonging at Cornell Initiative gave us. And so basically we, we invited faculty to create an assignment in their course um, and we offered small $750 grants and, and supported them in developing the assignment and introducing the project to the students and, and slowly the, the stories began to trickle in and we started to move into a, a, another phase, which was the, the production phase. But in the early phase, it's easy to celebrate stories of inclusion and to really want to forget about the exclusion experience because talking about exclusion is so painful because it's really the experience, literally the opposite of the experience of belongingness. It's the thing that pushed you out, that pushed you away, that didn't work out and you're wondering if it's because you're black or disabled or Latinx or something related to a personal aspect of your identity, you just don't have the answers or maybe you do have the answers, maybe it's very overt and you know exactly what happened. So we wanted to know, you know, our motto, any person, any study is really inspiring. It's always aspirational, but it's always a wall to hit up against because we, we always and ever fall short of it because of the way that oppression is like a helix that continues to, to clump up power in ways that are disadvantaging to, to members of some groups. So we always have to be, you know, essentially in battle fighting that. And so I wanted to hear the stories of the past of how our students and staff and faculty had dealt with key moments or participated in key moments or orchestrated change. And so the stories that are in the in the collection now are ones that were successful in finding a thread and finding an important moment. And then what became fascinating is to look at the patterns that emerged out of that to just begin to see what it actually takes to create change, like how much bravery, how much courage, even for things that you might think are small changes. Can I return to the the inspiration? Yes, yes. There's a couple of things I'd, I'd like to share. I think to me there was both an intellectual motivation and also an emotional motivation for what got us involved. And I think Melina did a great job sketching out that summer and the atmosphere that summer and the, the insurgency, that sense of insurgency. There was one other thing that happened that had an, an impact on me that really drove my interest here. And that was the release of a, of a report called Land Grab University in early 2020. And it's a retelling of the history of the Morrill Act. And the, the Morrill Act is a came out of the Civil War. It's what established land-grant universities. I'm a historian by training. I've lectured about the Morrill Act, and it treated it as a sort of 
an important moment in democratizing education, right? Higher education was going to be spread throughout the states. It wasn't going to be housed just in elite institutions. It was going to be available for a wider audience. It was going to be pragmatic and practical. It's a really important moment in American history. What Landgrab University did is it showed that the resources that were used to found those institutions, Cornell was, is one of them, came from the, the appropriated land of native tribes all over the current United States. And so that great democratizing act that had a huge impact on higher education was also underpinned, uh, the foundation of it was this, this act of, of disappropriation. And how do, you, how do you acknowledge that? How do you come to terms with that? A land acknowledgement doesn't, you know, doesn't come close to acknowledging that, that sort of debt. And so you know, as a historian, I'm really attracted to the complexity of the past. I'm not interested in history that boils down just into simple lessons and good guys and bad guys and, and things like that. And so this was an opportunity, I think, to tell those stories. And I think one of the things that um, was really reassuring on that is when we started to talk to the various groups and people to see, like, is this a good idea? Would you be interested in participating? I think they really wanted to make sure that this was going to be a complicated story, right? That, it, you know, Cornell applauds itself justly on admitting black students very early compared to many of our peers. That's great. That's an, an achievement. But what was the experience of black students at Cornell um, and how many of them were there uh, until quite recently, right? That's a very different kind of story. And both are really, I think, essential. I mentioned a, an emotional impetus to this too, and I think this to me was really where the, the COVID moment mattered to me, certainly, and I think to our colleagues, because Melina talked about how hard we were working, right? Helping the, the university transition to, to new teaching modalities, and it was, it was a lot. But one of the things, one of the many things it did was it brought home the importance of inclusion and belonging, right? It made you know, we talk all the time about students are bringing their whole selves into the classroom, into the learning environment. But that can be difficult to see in, a, in an auditorium with 300 students. It became impossible to, to miss in the context of COVID. And so I think it, it drove us all to think a little harder about what it is that can connect uh, people to, to Cornell, especially when Cornell is now distributed all over the globe people joining their classes from, from all sorts of different environments. So I think that's partially, that emotional impetus was part of where we found the energy to do this because of the, the sense of urgency that I think we felt. Yeah, I, I love this point that you just made, Rob, about the idea that when you, you know, when you have 300 students sitting in a classroom, you can almost miss the individual identities and the backgrounds of each of the students. Yet when, you know, when they're all logging in with video from home, their home life is right there present in front of you, right? And so it's hard to kind of ignore that now. And so, so I love that. Um, and I think you also honed in a little bit on this whole idea of inclusion and belonging, right? So Cornell does a great job of admitting, as you mentioned, black students, which is the inclusion part. But then it's the belonging piece. Once they get here, what is their experience like? So I, I also love in, in this project the, the various people that you had to not only collaborate with each other, obviously, but all the, the different faculty members and, and the different classrooms that you reached out to. So can we talk a little bit about some of the process that went into actually making this work? Um, and so as we mentioned, both of you have different backgrounds, different identities, even different disciplinary backgrounds, right? So Rob, you mentioned you're a historian, and Melina, you mentioned your background and how you came into Cornell. And so just kind of taking that into in consideration, what was that collaborative process like, um, not only with each other, but also the different faculty members? How did you decide which faculty you were going to reach out to to be part of this project? 
I can speak to that a little bit if I can remember and <laughs> help me recreate the details. Um, so, so we ended up deciding to create two, two separate groups, uh, a steering committee, which was a smaller group of faculty and a library representative. The library has been one of our key partners in the project, as has the museum. And then we also established an advisory group, and that group included students, staff, alumni, and a museum representative. And so we wanted to have a range of types of diversity represented in the group, both in terms of role, social identity, disciplinary perspective. And we started early on thinking about wanting to make sure that by the time we were done with the exhibition, we didn't forget about any important area of coverage. So we knew it was going to be really a selected set of stories. So it has a relatively comprehensive name. It makes it sound like all of Cornell's histories are going to be included there. And that's not true. There are many of these kinds of stories that are published frequently by our colleagues across the university that already exist in the in the library archives that show up in the Cornell Chronicle that show up for celebratory events that celebrate important anniversaries for our ethnic studies programs and, and, and all sorts of other places. So as soon as we conceived of the project, of course, I started to see, find and follow threads for all of these stories. And so then the question was, you know, which stories will make their way to us? And so the that actually, I think, really helped us understand the teaching and learning focus of our project and that it was a, a unique opportunity to work with instructors in a different way than we had in the past. Many of those faculty invited me and Rob in to come in and, and work with our students a little bit to just invite them open heartedly to participate in the project and tell them a little bit about the background of it. And so those those engagements were really special for us because we we work with students on a limited basis through our student employees, but we don't really teach undergraduates. We work primarily with our adult populations as as Rob said, um, and supporting the lifelong learning for folks who are looking to improve their teaching practice or just learn something new or just be in community with others who care about teaching and have interesting conversations about teaching. And I will say also, there's the teaching and learning way in and there's also we also invited individuals to pitch stories and contribute stories to the project. And so I spent some time meeting with individuals and giving feedback on our individual writers who weren't participating as students or faculty. Um, and that process has also been richly rewarding and interesting. So we have a story telling the history of the formation of the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. And that was with an individual writer, Ken Clark, who's a, a community member and director of the Tompkins Civil Rights Center. And then I have another two writers who are two women in their 80s who were graduate students at Cornell and graduated in the 60s, the late 60s. So they were here, you know, over a period of 10 years and have a fascinating story that they're still working on that's almost ready. So at that time when they were here, only 25% of Cornell's population were women. It was a, a world that really was preparing women to be housewives and homemakers. One last story. I took a walk with another faculty member who had participated who just happened to mention that what her students really loved about it was learning. They, they were surprised by how much their own sense of belonging was connected to or increased when they heard about Cornell's recent history of struggles with trying to become more inclusive. And so that was a really interesting anecdote. So I'll take this back to the original question, which was sort of like, what was the process like? What was our collaboration like? 
And I'll just say this project was, I mean, it was, it was challenging. It was long. It has been long. It's been frustrating at times that what we aspire to ends up looking messier in the reality and, and all of that. But overall, it has been an amazing process and an amazing opportunity for Melina and I to work together. It's weird, right? Because we're colleagues. We work together all the time, sort of. But we rarely get the opportunity to do this sort of intense and personal work together. So it's been an interesting experience for me personally because I'm a historian. I'm familiar with a lot of how this sort of history gets, gets written, although public history is a little outside of my zone. But it's been really interesting to watch Melina and others on our team sort of discover history in a new way for them for the first time. And it's been great that that's come through involvement with Stephen Veter and with the public history class and, and to see that. What's been really exciting for me is to see sort of Melina at work as what I think of as an amazing sort of connector. Like, you know, how did these stories, how did this project grow? How did it come to us? A lot of it grew because... Melina began conversations with people, people she already knew or people she just reached out to because we thought maybe they would be interested. And those conversations led to further conversations, which led to further conversations, which often led to stories that we never would have, would have seen coming or, or would have thought that was out there and that there was somebody to tell. And so I think when we started this, I had high aspirations for the, the end product, like this was going to be a, a digital exhibition that's just going to blow people away. And that was where the impact was going to be. That's where the belonging was going to really build. And I, I still hold those aspirations. It feels different now at this stage than it did at the beginning when anything is possible. But what I missed, and I think what's been very exciting, is to see that belonging happening, growing, uh, that con sense of connection and sense of people being rooted at Cornell because of connections to stories from earlier generations that comes with the actual, like the research and the writing of those stories. And then not just that, the opportunity to come together and to talk about that experience. We did a launch event, Aaron, you were part of it in the fall. And what was part of what was fun was seeing people actually bring that experience to others and share a little bit about what it was like to do this work and then to see the results. There's so much in what both of you just shared. It, it just, this was a project that, that I think both of you took great care and time with to talk to so many people. And, and, that, and yeah, so here we are in the middle of a pandemic. Everybody's feeling extra remote, <laughs> extra siloed, but yet I heard about it. I heard about it. I was intrigued. You know, I talked to people about it. Other people talked, right? So I just think that that can't be underestimated, the, the time and the care and the thoughtfulness that you put into it. And the fact that, you know, this is a hard place to do that type of collaboration. I mean, everybody was involved. Every segment of our population was represented, students, staff, alumni, you know, community members. I mean, that is huge to have been able to have that many people become invested in, in a common, shared experience of putting this together. And I love what both of you alluded to as well, which is you sort of, if I heard you right, you sort of kept it in your vision to also make sure that you were focusing on stories that we didn't already know. You know, that hadn't already been told. You know, you were finding those stories that already make headlines <laughs> and, you know, weren't already highly taught in classes or whatever. And you were bringing life to those. And that's what I have found enjoyable reading the stories is that these are things that I should have known that I wish somebody had told us. But, you know, but, or they're, just, they're not always on a macro level. Sometimes they were on a micro level, but that's just as powerful as you said. This is powerful to contributing to that idea of creating belonging.
I just love what you just said about the stories are still there, right? And so, you know, Melina, you mentioned two of the stories that I also was just fascinated by when I when I visited the website before this session in that I've always heard that the first black fraternity was kind of created here at Cornell. I had no, I didn't know the story behind it, right? I didn't know the why it was formed, how it was formed, who were the people that were involved. And that was just amazing to read. Same thing with the Cornell Botanical Gardens. Like I was here when the name change happened and I knew that the change change happened. I had no idea, like all the behind the scenes of what went into why it happened or how long it took for for that name change to happen, all those stories, right? And so I, I feel like sometimes when we identify a problem and create a task force to solve it, we forget the stories behind them. And I, that's what I absolutely love about this project is that this brings these stories to light. I love that. A couple of things there that I'd love to talk a little bit about. So you know, that the story versus the task force, it's really true. And what makes it even just a little more complicated in the in the issue of the Botanic Gardens is that is that the task force were also part of the pro right. of the solution, right? <laughs> like like the change came out of a result of that the sort of slow bureaucratic process, but also that sort of fierce urgency of activism and that that relationship I thought was really interesting, which also I think is suggests something that that Aaron was alluding to, like the stories that we don't always know. Like it's such a stereotype to think about you know, like student activism as as being located in the in the 60s and 70s right that was when people were advocating for change when change happened and partially what i i'm really excited about these stories our stories aren't really located in that moment they could have been there's certainly lots of stories to tell there many of them are somewhat familiar but that process of of activism that process of advocacy of people building communities and finding belonging and advocating for particular groups is ever present and everywhere you look in Cornell history you find that and I think so looking at those moments and telling those stories I think becomes really important and it helps people I think at Cornell today see themselves as a part of a, a long litany of advocacy. Can I mention a couple of little details from the stories that just speak to this point that, that Rob is making and also just to these kind of aha moments that you have because in my in my imagination Cornell was always the way it is now <laughs> not a historian um, lack of imagination moment but then I start reading the stories and so Alpha Phi Alpha emerges after a year where almost all of the black male students leave because they had an experience of exclusion that was very painful and so two or three brothers who were left get together and, and basically hatch a plan to support each other and so it emerges out of a moment of a, of a micro community being born. And that's a theme that, that repeats in other stories as well, that basically people need to find a way to survive because it's very lonely um, and they have to figure out systems. And then it turns into a huge thing, a fraternity that proliferates all, all across the United States and becomes a source of social capital and social wealth that those brothers can rely on and continue to help each other and draw and draw from. So it, becomes something that actually is a, a moment that becomes a systemic change moment, because that's the other part of my investigation, right? How do we go from being individuals to actually changing systems that are disadvantaging? And how do we participate in that change effort and kind of sort of understanding the role of the individual or even the small group or the collective or, or collective change efforts? Another example that we ha haven't mentioned yet uh, and there's two little details I wanted to highlight. So one is the Loving House story, and maybe Rob can talk a little bit about that one. But the other one, there's a story that's about sort of abortion rights, sexual education before Roe v. Wade at Cornell. And so Cornell turns out to be a pioneer 
in, in a couple of different ways. First of all, there's three fabulous interviews that are in that story that drive the story. And the, and the two writers went into the archives and found so much documentation and correspondence from Cornell administrators to families, to other universities, sort of talking about this key moment. There was a clergy network that would take women who needed abortions across state lines into Pennsylvania to get an abortion. This was before abortion was legal in, in New York State, also before Roe v. Wade, but this was before then. But here's the funny anecdote I wanted to share. Uh, women figured out that they needed to get the word out because even at that time, Cornell was a place where you would come to get your MRS degree. Like people were looking for a husband, they thought, mm. and people would, and women would get asked, oh, are you going for your MRS degree? They realized that they needed to educate each other about birth control, how to be safe, how to protect themselves, what resources were available. So they created a pamphlet that they referred to tongue in cheek as the birds and the bees pamphlet. And it didn't have any words on the cover. It just had birds and bees. And so people, it was easy to mimeograph it or Xerox it, and you could carry it in your purse and pass it around to your friends. Um, and so students created that. And then the following year, Cornell hired an, an, a sex education expert coordinator who was the first one in the universities in the US, that first person. And so suddenly other IVs and other large universities were knocking on Cornell's door to figure out how are you supporting your female students and reproductive health. And of course, during this process, we see the fall of Roe v. Wade. You know, last year we, we heard about that. And so this story comes out with a call to, you know, hey Cornell, what is what is your responsibility towards supporting reproductive health of our student population now like what how are, how are you going to reckon with this so just one detail there and rob can you say a little bit about the loving house can, can i just say i have to say when i read the story about the mrs degree i literally sat there reading it like i don't understand what does mrs stand for thinking it was like masters of rehabilitation and then yeah. all of a sudden it hit me oh that's mrs yes, yes. and it, it but it really spoke to what one of you said earlier about how you take for granted the way things are now that you don't even realize you're so distant from the history. I have never called myself Mrs. And I've been married for 13 years. I will not. I am not a Mrs. I am Aaron Semboucher. The end. It was a big deal just to hyphenate, to be honest, you know, but I compromised. So, you know, but it, like back then, that was just so, you know, the obvious norm and the expectation. And it just, it was a reminder to me, there's a reason I could be this way now. And it's because of what those women did then. It's such a great point, and I'll say when I was when I came to Cornell in the 1980s, I was in the, initially in the College of Human Ecology, which the gender ratios there were were it was very heavily uh, women. I think it was like 80 to 90 percent women, and that stereotype still persisted. That's where I first learned what an MRS degree uh, was because it was really used to to sort of discipline women in their in their interests and really pernicious ways. But that the importance of, of not sort of taking the present for granted, I think, is is a, a theme that also emerged from a lot of people's experiences. And Loving House is one of those stories, right? So Loving House is really, it's the story of how Cornell came to have an LGBTQ plus learning, learning unit established on North Campus. It's a fairly recent emergence. And so it's a success story. It's a, it's a great success story. But what was interested is the story, the history of that, the story that, that emerged was actually written by the directors of that unit and the, and the students who are living there and who are learning about it. But, but they were unaware, I think, of what it took to get to that, that achievement and where the origins of that story go back into the early 1990s, but also how recent it was um, and how contested it was to get there. And 
that was a story that meant a lot to me because the advocacy um, really began in the early 1990s, just after I would have uh, would have left. And I have to say, you know, the the atmosphere that I experienced at Cornell, advocacy for LGBTQ peoples, and of course at that point it was advocacy for homosexual rights, how, sort of how we talked about it, or gay and lesbian rights, if you were a little more progressive, was really in its in its sort of infancy. It, it was an uphill struggle with with me and with many of the my friends and colleagues, um, but it was also definitely a moment of transition, and so. It was really interesting for me to see how quickly after I left that it moved to advocacy, although it also ran right into intransigency from the university, um, and that there was still a lot of work to do to, to sort of build that support. I know from teaching my students in class there, it's really difficult to fight a sort of progressive narrative. Like, yes, we, we were just doing a little of that ourselves, right? The, the distance between the MRS degree and where we are now is, is massive, and, it, and it's, it's salutary, it's good. Right. But we can't let ourselves be fooled into thinking that that sort of progress is just sort of inevitable and ever in one direction. Yeah, or that it's permanent change, as we saw with the fall of the Roe v. Wade. Well, again, so much, <laughs> so much I could respond to um, on that. But I think that what I'd like to ask you both is because I, you know, you sort of started to allude to this, so I, I think it's a good segue. That one of the goals, as I understood it from this project was that it would lead to an increased sense of belonging among members of the Cornell community. I'd love to hear more about how you think that, you know, has done that. And I, because what I find interesting is that, again, when I hear of a goal like that, we want to increase the sense of belonging among the Cornell community now. My first go-to wouldn't be to talk about a bunch of things that happened way back when, right? So it, it's really interesting to think about, okay, but yet as we're talking, you know, and as I was reading those stories, I, I felt that, right? So I'd love to hear more about, you know, your thoughts around how this project might be doing that, and maybe because you've been hearing things from people already, um, whether it be the people who wrote the stories or the people that are reading them, but just, you know, how do you see that goal actually playing out now? That's such a great segue, Aaron, um, because it reminds us early in the project, we, we were working with, with a student group who was going to actually help us with the website design. And they also, I think, had a very similar reaction to you. Like, you want to talk about belonging? Let's talk about my experience right now. Like, you know, we kept having to say, this is a history project. And they're like, oh, yeah, we hear that. But that was not where they wanted this, this to go, which is a very natural thing. I think it, it isn't necessarily the first thing you think of when you think about creating that. Um, I think there is something powerful about both the, the confluence of stories and of a connection to the past. You know, if you walk across any part of Cornell's campus, right, you cannot help but think about, wow, this has been here a long time. Look, there's like Gothic buildings and the, the clock tower and it's, there is a history all around me, right? And how do I fit in that history? And I think not everybody connects to, to that history, like, because they can't see them you know, their previous generations of their family being any part of that environment. So, so finding ways to make that connection is, I think, really important. And, and we took a gamble on that. Like, we, we had that initial impulse. We tested it in conversation with people. But we didn't really know if it was going to work. And I think it wasn't until we began to see the students work and to hear their responses to the work that we got to, to sense that feeling. The second part is, like, what will the impact of the digital exhibition be? 
Will people find it? Will they respond to it? Will they continue to come back to it as we add stories? And I think that's very much an unanswered question for us that we're, we're curious about. What I love about your project, and, and there's a couple, I have so many thoughts that, you know, that, I'm, I'm, that are going through my head. This idea that both of you, I'm switching gears just slightly here, the idea that both of you figured out different ways to work with faculty, right? Like, so you work with faculty day in and out in, in the jobs that you hold. And yet this project allowed you to work with faculty in a completely different way, allowed you to work with students in a completely different way, right? And, and colleagues in a completely different way, different projects, things that you've never done before. So what I love about that is this idea that you somehow figured out a way to incorporate DEI, or in, in this case, really inclusion work in the work that you currently do, right? And, and we know that a lot of our staff and faculty, to an extent, struggle with doing that. And Aaron and I talk about this concept all the time, this idea that DEI is, is a separate thing that we do. So it's, you know, idea that, oh, it's now my next half an hour, time for me to focus on diversity and inclusion. It never works that way. It needs to be part of who we are, and it needs to just be incorporated in everything that we do, right? And so because you guys have been successful at making that work in this project and in the work that you do, can you share some maybe ideas or, or how you went about making, making that possible with, with staff or faculty that are struggling with this concept? I can say a few words about this. So the, the reason, you know, part of the reason that the history of struggle, so to speak, is interesting to me is because when I see that others also had pain, when I see that others also were excluded, it makes me realize I'm not alone in that experience. Like there's something about a kind of solidarity consciousness that emerges for me across history so that it's not necessarily about progress. Like I know I'm going to encounter exclusion again. In fact, it might happen tomorrow or it might happen later today, but I hope that I can begin to find those micro communities where I find support and that those grow. And then of course, in my professional role, I hope to help foster the skills where people can be very deliberate about that. And so we have lots of little anecdotes about how the, how the project is landing on people and where it begins to and some of it is in the stories themselves, where at the end of some of the stories, there are student reflections about what they learned from working on those projects that are that are really moving. Like they, they just didn't, they sort of unexpectedly discovered something interesting that made them realize that, for example, um, offering more diversity of languages in the curriculum can actually create a sense of belonging for some students and create opportunities for those micro communities. They don't use that word micro communities, but you basically see some of those themes kind of emerging. So I do, I completely agree with you, Terrell, that like it's always an ever present diversity, equity and inclusion shouldn't be like a topic, right? Like it should just be like a commonly held set of understandings or a framework that we can all hold together and be, be mindful of, right? It's like a kind of orient, internal orientation that you have towards a community. Erin, you mentioned this, it's for the Cornell community. We, we spend a lot of time talking about who's our audience, who are we trying to reach, who are we hoping that we can foster change among. Um, and, and it's really through that through that dialogue process, which I think everybody knows takes some practice. Like it's, it's a little bit awkward to invite conversations about social identities, to be honest about the pain that's involved with this. But it's also, it makes me feel so good. There's little ways of um, signaling, not virtue signaling, but like genuinely signaling that you can be supportive of the kinds of oppression that people who happen to hold a certain identity category faced at Cornell or in the broader society, and that I'm going to stand with you on it. I wanted to circle back to that 
that original question, which is, you know, how do we keep DEI work from being sort of set into a box that doesn't touch the rest of our work? And I think we, and, and by we here, Melina leads us, our whole team on this, like we spend a lot of time on how to make that case to faculty, right? That it doesn't matter what your discipline is, that, that all of these issues are super important and relevant and, and talk about the ways in which representation in the curriculum really matters for people, to just take one example. One of the things that I, I think is really salutary about the embrace of the word belonging is that that I think is, a, is another way to make um, the argument to our faculty for the importance of this, right? There's, there's really good evidence, for example, when underrepresented minorities or first-generation students struggle in classes their first year, they take that as a verdict on their belongingness, as evidence that they don't belong at Cornell, whereas students that are coming from more privileged backgrounds don't. They're like, I blew that test, I struggled, you know, happens, I'll get by it, right? And so no matter what your discipline is, that question of belonging has a huge impact on your students and how they're actually doing the work in your class and, and interpreting that work. You know, so that's just one example of how I think we try to, to broaden the conversation in any discipline. Well, I think what you just illustrated by those examples, both of you, that diversity, equity, and inclusion is not a topic. It's an approach. It's an action, right? It's not a subject to be discussed. It's a way of doing what you do. I think so much of what you all have talked about, too, is reminding me of another story that was highlighted about, um, that I did not know, which was about how the term sexual harassment was coined because of a case that occurred at Cornell in the 70s. And I'm not going to say anything more, because we really want our listeners to get online after they hear this and read all these stories for themselves. But to your point, it was a student who wrote that story and was at the end, like you said, Melina, kind of summarizing what their takeaway was from learning about this. And what that author wrote was that it was really a reminder of the, quote, power of language that we use to validate people's experiences. The power of language to validate experiences. And I think that this project as a whole is demonstrating that. You know, through storytelling, you have given you know, people free reign to use language to validate all these experiences that have occurred. And then to your point earlier, for somebody reading it now who might be challenged, it could validate their experience now, even if their experience had nothing to do with any of those stories, right? They're having their own current experience, but it could be validated by reading those other stories of the past. It's very powerful. I love that, and I, I, I love it because you could teach a student that, right? I could lecture, I could give a theoretical background for where those con the concepts of what, you know, language, we could go into linguistics, there's a whole theoretical apparatus that I do a lecture on. But what the student gets out of that is very different than the student who wrote that sentence. That That is the culmination of what we would call like an authentic learning experience, right? An, an experience where they, they actually had to, to grapple with this and to arrive at that conclusion themselves based on what they're reading and seeing. And so there's times when I think Melina and I both think about this project and go, well, how exactly is this connected to the Center for Teaching Innovation and the rest of our work? It's a public history project. But I think when you see the, the sort of learning that's coming out of the assignments associated with this, that, that connection is very clear to me.
you know, it's a, it's a good message to kind of end this on, right, in in this conversation on it is that it's, one, I want to just focus a little bit on about something you said earlier, Melina, and it's this idea that inclusion can just be little things, right? It could just be asking this question at the beginning of the semester of the students. You know, you know staff spaces, it could just be asking somebody, how are you doing? You know, how, how was your weekend? Actually, and then actually stopping to listen to their answer, right? Making them feel like I care about you as a person, which is genuinely very, very true. So the idea of inclusion could actually just take on little, little forms. Erin, I love the way you put it earlier that it's not an, it's not an, not a topic, uh, not it's a an top, approach. It's an approach, right? I, I love I love that concept. And, and you and I have talked about that. Hashtag. Yeah, we <laughs> hashtag yes from now on. We've talked about that so much. And so um, I think it's a great message to, to end this conversation on. Melina and Rob, I want to thank both of you for joining us. Um, and also I want to encourage all of our listeners to go visit the website. Um, and I'll actually give Melina uh, you a chance to actually share the website if, you, if you're able to, to go visit the website and, and read these amazing stories that, that are existing. And, and I love that you're going to continue this for another year as well. And so we'll have new stories um, is coming through as part of this project. Thank you both so much. So Melina, I'll hand it back to you for just a second to just give us the website. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been a delightful conversation. Um, so the website is blogs.cornell.edu forward slash many stories. Perfect. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you both. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you having us. Thank you. We're so glad that we could shine some light on this wonderful project. And I have no doubt. I know you think the jury's out, Melina, but I designate myself the jury, and I, yeah. I say it's a success. I agree. Done and over. We, we accept your self-designation. I, sec- I second that. <laughs> That's great. Wow, Toil. That conversation was even more amazing than I already knew it would be. What a great project. Mm-hmm. There's so much, I mean, that you, we could talk about, right. <laughs> you know, but like I said, I also want to, you know, make sure that we don't give it all away. Yep. I was going to say, we can actually explore each individual story in, in you know, in our recap here. Um, but Erin, I will point out the one thing that really kind of has stayed with me and I thought about it throughout our conversation uh, with Melina and Rob is this idea that we look at and we say it all the time is this Cornell was a pioneer in some of these things, Right. The idea that some of these things have happened in our history, we look at them as our as a moments of pride. You know, as one story that we've explored in the conversation was the fraternity, right? Today we look upon that as as a prideful moment in our history that Cornell was was the the place where this first um, black fraternity was created. However, what we forget are the stories behind those prideful moments, right? We forget that there were moments of exclusion that ultimately lead to some form of inclusion, right? And that ultimately lead for us us to be proud of something. That's what I love about this project is that it brings those stories to light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and actually that's similar to what uh, Rob was talking about, about one of the inspirations for him was realizing when he read the land grab yeah. uh, information that it sort of shifted for him, you know, the, the way of thinking about the Moral Act and democratizing education that sure, that of itself is a wonderful thing, but he hadn't considered the complexity of what that meant, you know, 
that was stemming from some negative things, you know, and just that juxtaposition, I guess, of realizing that for a lot of progress, it can actually be at the expense of something else and, and, and trying to reconcile that. And I do think that a project like this helps to tease that out yeah. um, in ways that, that can be hard. These aren't easy subjects, you know, and everybody struggles nowadays with how to have these conversations and what they did was they took the time to really explore these things and have the conversations with many people. You know, everybody wants you to have a plan for, you know, DEI and making everything better. Well, that's how you do it. You take time. Yes. <laughs> you take time. You give thoughtfulness to it. You talk to people. You enroll people. And then the other thing, too, is, again, I, everybody is recognizing that we need to be doing more systemic work, right, focusing on systemic change. Well, you could go back and read these stories and see just how that could be done. Yes. <laughs> because all these things have, have an element of systemic change at the end of it, you know? And that's amazing to be able to actually witness and how that happened. Yeah. And that actually leads me to something that you mentioned in the interview, this idea that, like, oh, we identify a problem, and in this case, like a DEI problem, we form a task force, and then we solve a problem, right? And that's great, but we forget that there are the emotions behind it. There are people's experiences behind those issues. And I love what you just said now about taking the time to also recognize that. It's not just, hey, here's the problem, we're going to take care of it. It's also like recognizing that people had genuine feelings attached to those issues and, and experiences that they had here. And so it's all, for me, it's all connected, right? You can't, you can't just like solve the problem without recognizing what the experiences were, you know, and what, what people might have gone through. And, you know, one thing, again, with a project like this, it really is a good reminder that sometimes the way you can really understand a current issue is by looking at how we got here. Yes. <laughs> and the fact that they're focusing on those histories of inclusion and exclusion, it could help somebody to maybe understand, for example, why, you know, some people are very upset about Roe v. Wade being overturned. Well, look at the history. You know, that helps you to see why that might be, you know, causing such challenges today, right? Uh, so there's another way of, of, of addressing some of our current issues and problems is by really taking that time to focus on how we got here. Yeah. And, and I like that um, that both Rob and Melina were able to kind of embed this kind of work in their yes. their work they do every day, day in and day out. Um, there was a couple of things that Rob said that really kind of hit me in a great way. And I think it was a great message for, for all of our staff and faculty. And this idea that, one, that they they figured out a different way to work with, with staff and faculty, right, uh, for this particular project outside of the work that they do every day. But there's also this message for people that sometimes this kind of work and this these kinds of projects require bravery. Um, I think that's the word that he used, and I really liked that particular word, and it requires you to step out of your comfort zone. Um, you know, they mentioned that even the students and stuff, that the individuals that they partnered with, there wasn't necessarily comfort around it, but they all stepped out of their comfort zone. They they all kind of took on this this space of bravery to kind of make this project work. And I and I really like that message too. I really was touched by something Melina said actually early on that because of who she is, and I think both who she is as a person, but also her backgrounds and her education, the way she makes meaning of things is through stories. 
it's actually pretty powerful because, you know, it can be hard, you know, to make meaning of challenging situations. And it's a different way of thinking about it, you know, making making meaning of it by understanding the stories Correct. and the experiences rather than just looking at data or facts, which can have its place. But, you know, this is a different way of making meaning, which I, I think is really powerful. Yeah, I think that's a great, great place to end this. Um, this is this idea of storytelling as, you know, a different way of making meaning. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Department of Inclusion and Belonging in collaboration with the Cornell Broadcast Studio. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and submit a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners to find us and the show. For the latest updates on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging at Cornell, be sure to visit diversity.cornell.edu. My name is Erin Sembrechase. And my name is Toral Patel. We would also like to thank our co-producer and sound engineer, Bert Odom-Reed, for making us sound wonderful each and every episode. Thanks, Thanks Bert. Bert.